Our second lesson is from Paul's letters to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. 
but it will be more bearable in the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capricorn, will go, will be exalted to heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to you, to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning in our second lesson from Ephesians, we find Paul's famous passage on the spiritual armor. And throughout the years, there has been no shortage of debate and puzzlement among believers about what exactly Paul is talking about. Not to mention, how does it apply to our lives? But in verse 12, he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this is the key verse to understanding the passage. As Paul reminds us, reminds the Ephesians and us, that there's an unseen spiritual realm that apparently has considerable influence over what occurs in the physical realm that we live in. So before I get into interpreting what Paul says about the spiritual armor, I want to begin this morning by digging into what the Bible reveals about this spiritual realm Paul refers to. So what do the scriptures tell us about who these spiritual rulers and authorities are? Where they came from? What is their relationship to God and what impact do they have on our lives today? Now I understand that this is a lot to take on in one day. In fact, this might be a good day to plan to take home a manuscript if this topic interests you at all. Since I'll be trying to summarize truths gleaned from Scripture scattered all over the Bible, yet my manuscript has footnotes to explain things more deeply than time allows me to this morning. But furthermore, a fair amount of what I will present this morning may be sort of new to you. Because most churches either avoid this topic altogether of the spiritual realm, while others, a minority of churches, won't shut up about it, right? Won't shut up about engaging the spiritual realm. And yet, 
usually have, they have developed a doctrine of the spiritual realm that's based on taking a bunch of scriptures like Ephesians 6 completely out of context. So whatever your impressions of the spiritual realm, I would encourage y'all to try to come along for the ride with me this morning. And even if your head begins spinning at a point or two, hang in there with me, okay? So let's jump in. I think the best place to begin talking about what the Bible reveals about the spiritual realm is by pointing out a curious pattern in Scripture that some of you may have noticed. Throughout the Old Testament, there are hints that the heavenly realm includes gods of some sort other than our own. For example, the first verse of Psalm 82 today in your bulletin states, God takes his stand in the council of heaven. He gives judgment in the midst of the gods. Now what can make this seem odd is that Judaism, the religion of the Old Testament, is a famously monotheistic religion, meaning the Israelites worshipped only one god, right? And his name, that god's name, is Yahweh, or Jehovah, which means I am. Although the Jews considered God's name, Yahweh, too sacred to say. So whenever you see in Scripture the word Lord in all capital letters, you know that the actual Hebrew there is God's name, Yahweh. So Judaism is monotheistic, and Christianity, which comes out of Judaism, of course, nuances this a bit with the doctrine of the Trinity, But Christianity is still monotheistic. We believe in the one God, Yahweh. We just believe he exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, in many locations in the Old Testament, there is mention of this divine counsel. Mentioned in verse 1 of our psalm. Or as the psalmist addresses them in verse 6 of our psalm. He says, you are gods, and all of you sons of the Most High. Elsewhere, like in verse 8 of our first lesson from Deuteronomy today, these spiritual beings are explicitly called sons of God. But I should clarify that this doesn't mean these beings are actually God's children. Instead, the term sons of God in Hebrew is really just a term that means these are spiritual beings like God is, as opposed to physical beings like we are. That's what sons of God means, that they're spiritual beings. But another way scripture refers to this divine council of spiritual beings is the term host of heaven. Y'all heard that phrase before? You'll often see this phrase in hymns, right? But believers often don't grasp what it means. Host is an old English word meaning armies. And it appears about 20 times in the Old Testament. So, for example, there's a verse in 1 Kings that says, I saw the Lord, Yahweh, sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. In other words, that verse is describing God as being surrounded by an army of spiritual beings. But again, even though these sons of God or heavenly hosts are spiritual beings like Yahweh, this is where their similarities with God end. 
Because Scripture consistently makes clear that God, Yahweh, is greater than they are. More than 50 times in the Old Testament, it refers to Yahweh as the Most High God. A notably relative term, right? Uh, Meaning He's Most High in comparison to these other spiritual beings. Elsewhere, He's called the God of Gods and the Lord of Lords. So when we do come across passages that would seem to rule out the existence of other gods, like the one that says, there is no other god but Yahweh, what this really means is that these other gods just do not compare to Yahweh. They're so lesser than than Yahweh. You might think of them as demigods. But they're also different because they aren't eternal beings like Yahweh. Instead, they are beings with limited power created at some point along the line by God. God created them. So what can we know about God's creation of these beings? Well, ancient peoples actually identified the heavenly lights of the moon and the stars with these divine beings. In fact, the moon and the stars were the gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. That's who they worshipped, right? But the Israelites identified these heavenly lights as representing divine beings as well, actually. Of course, they recognized that Yahweh was the most high God behind it all, But the gods of other nations are identified with the moon or the stars or the, quote, starry host at least a dozen times in the Old Testament by the Israelites. Well, this has led some to conclude, and this this may feel like a little bit of a jump, but some to make the jump that the fourth day of creation in Genesis 1, back in the first chapter of Genesis, That fourth day of creation is describing God's creation of these demigods, of these lesser spiritual beings. That when it says God created the sun and the moon and the stars on day four to, quote, rule the day and night and rule over the day, that this is a description of God delegating some level of authority to these demigods or heavenly hosts. And those who argue for this interpretation note that there are only two instances in Genesis 1 where God gives something in his creation authority to rule. The only two instances are on the sixth day when God gives humans dominion over the creatures of the earth, right? And on that fourth day, when God gives these hosts of heaven authority over darkness and light, whatever that means. But our first lesson this morning actually fills in a little more information about what sort of authority God delegated to these spiritual beings. Look what Moses says beginning at verse 7, where I've underlined. He writes, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. 
When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Here, Moses is explaining that after creating these sons of God, the Lord assigned each one to a different nation. But Yahweh kept Jacob, the nation of Israel, for himself. So what you're looking at in that verse is the Bible's explanation. Get this, the Bible's explanation for how these spiritual beings or a heavenly host became the false gods of the nation surrounding Israel. Right there, Deuteronomy 32. But if you read about some of these false gods of these foreign nations in the Bible, some of them are responsible for pretty awful things, you know, like calling those who worship them to sacrifice their children to them and things like that. God clearly also doesn't want them to have anything to do with these foreign gods, right, the Israelites. So what changed? If God created these spiritual beings, what went wrong? Well, Scripture seems to indicate that these spiritual beings had a fall into evil that paralleled humanity's fall into sin. So just as the serpent convinced Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 to be dissatisfied with the role that God had given them, you know, of of having dominion over creatures, apparently these sons of God weren't satisfied with their role either. This is perhaps the best explanation of a bizarre episode in Genesis 6 that describes the sons of God deciding to have sex with the daughters of men. I told you it was bizarre, right? With human women. So you see, instead of simply ruling the nations they were given authority over, these sons of God misused that authority by violating these humans and using them to their own ends. Therefore, it seems that at least these spiritual beings became evil. We know not all the sons of God became evil because some are angels who continue to serve the Lord, but at least the ones who were assigned to the nations seem to have fallen, right? whatever that looked like. Well, among these evil spirits, a chief also emerges. And this is famously revealed at the beginning of the story of Job. Just listen to Job chapter 1. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? So the Bible associates these sons of God who've become evil spirits, if you will, with seeking to influence humans toward destroying themselves and destroying one another, and Satan is their chief, the most powerful, you might say. And the Bible further associates these sons of these evil spirits with driving the political, economic, and moral corruption of the nations that they wield their authority over. 
Well, as Israel's history moves forward to the era of the monarchy and the age of the prophets, the nation of Babylon in particular becomes identified with Satan himself because it, the, nation, the empire of Babylon unleashed the most evil and terror on the ancient world. Of course, Babylon eventually conquered Israel, right, and took them into exile in the 6th century B.C. And, and through that, the Babylonians come to symbolize all forms of human power that wickedly elevates itself above God or to the place of God. And that reign of evil, such evil, continues to increase in the narrative of Scripture, unchecked for centuries until God intervenes by sending His Son. Scripture describes Jesus as the one and only Son of God. There's that phrase again. Which again, putting aside kind of the doctrine of the Trinity, one and only in ancient terms can be taken to mean the Son of God who is the ultimate or the greatest. Well, Jesus, of course, comes to announce a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, a good kingdom, which humans can enter into through following him and become freed from enslavement to these evil principalities and wickedness. But in the Gospels, we see that as Jesus is ministering, What happens? He both provokes and has confrontations with many demons, right? And what are these? You guessed it. These are the same fallen sons of God we've been talking about who oppose the reign of God. In fact, the Greek word for demons literally means a lesser being or demigod, right? Y'all tracking with me at all? Well, if we turn briefly to our gospel passage from Luke, where I underlined, you'll notice, you know, it's described Jesus sending out 72 of his followers to minister in his name. And in verse 17, they return saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And look how Jesus responds. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Meaning, as Jesus sees people giving their, shifting their allegiance to him as God's appointed new human king, as people shift their participation from, from human kingdoms given to evil into God's kingdom, in the spiritual realm, Jesus is seeing Satan's kingdom falling, right? And then, of course, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he made Satan's defeat sure and also made a way for us to become adopted, according to Paul, sons of God and daughters of God. There it is again. Meaning we're no longer required to be enslaved to the evil forces of the fallen sons of God, because in Christ we now have we now are not subject to them. Right? But 
as we all know too well, we still remain vulnerable to cooperating with evil and even being quite blind to the fact that we're doing it at times. In fact, any time believers operate in either attitudes or behaviors that dehumanize ourselves or other people, we are aligning ourselves with those spiritual forces opposed to God. And of course, we are vulnerable to this in many areas and on many levels. As I mentioned, the Old Testament seems to focus on evil spirits wielding influence on the geopolitical level, right? And it's no wonder, since if Satan really wants to bring destruction upon humans, the most efficient means for doing it is through the power of empire, right? That's the most efficient way to do it. And you won't find many who would argue that Hitler or Stalin or Mao Zedong or Pol Pot were instruments of Satan, will you? I mean, I think we can all kind of stipulate that. But another example closer to home of political ideology leading to dehumanization Another example is what our nation did to Native Americans in the name of a political ideology called Manifest Destiny. Still haven't, our nation still hasn't repented of this. But also in the present day, there are many ideologies that lead people to dehumanize other people. Many on the left shamelessly peddle ideology dehumanizing the unborn. While an increasing number on the right are buying into ideology that dehumanizes immigrants or minorities or prisoners. In other words, our nation's politics are rife with ideologies that dehumanize one party of people to cater to the selfishness of another group of people. And to align with those ideologies is to align ourselves with the powers of evil, plain and simple. We can rationalize it if we want. But taking it kind of down a level from the geopolitical, narrowing things down to our own daily lives and how we relate to our fellow man Jesus addresses some of the ways we most commonly dehumanize one another in his Sermon on the Mount, such as when we retaliate against someone who's wronged us with resentment or contempt, or when we objectify another sexually with our eyes, or when we carry unforgiveness that leads us away from treating others with dignity. Despite how common and completely excused and rationalized these behaviors are in our society, when we behave this way, we are cooperating with Satan's plan for us. Plain and simple, not the Lord's plan. And finally, in our home, just last week we talked about a, how 
common, a, a dynamic develops in a marriage where we seek to serve ourselves by relating to our spouse with controlling love rather than differentiating from them and loving them unconditionally and sacrificially. Well, in doing so, we are dehumanizing them. We are playing God in their lives. It's not just our spouses, though. Our kids aren't exempt from this. As we can dehumanize them as well by projecting our own dreams upon their lives or positioning our ego to feed off of their achievements. Again, in our society, many of these behaviors are viewed as completely normal. But in truth, they are satanic. Sorry. The father of lies is behind that. Well, this finally leads us back to Ephesians. It's been quite a journey. Back to Ephesians, where Paul affirms in verse 12 that we, quote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Which he then follows with a description of this spiritual armor that he says we're all supposed to take up or put on to defend ourselves. Now, there are pockets of the church that have interpreted Um, this passage to mean, you know, in light of verse 12, to mean that Christians are called to offensively engage these evil spiritual powers. In other words, to storm the gates of hell through prayer in the name of Jesus. And in, in that kind of paradigm, the idea is that this armor is something we kind of prey on first that then makes us kind of spiritual superheroes that are, are spiritually invincible. maybe perhaps but if we consider this passage in light of the context of the whole letter and in light of what Paul has been up to in Ephesians it becomes pretty clear that that's not what Paul is aiming for at all many of you recall when we began walking through Ephesians back in July we saw Paul opening this letter by reminding the Ephesians of the new way of living Jesus has made available. Life in the Spirit, or life in the kingdom, whatever you want to call it. Over and over again, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, or in the Lord. And we talked about how Paul was calling us to actually stand in the Lord, to live in the Lord. Meaning to live in an active relationship of reliance upon Him through His Holy Spirit. But then a few weeks later, we we had moved forward in Ephesians and we saw how Paul had moved forward in the letter talking about, to talk about ethical instruction. The passage we looked at was where Paul was encouraging the Ephesians to put away falsehood, to put away anger and corrupt talk. Y'all remember that? To seek to become a giver rather than a taker. However, Paul was meaning there to paint a picture of of the sort of righteousness that can become possible when we seek to live in Christ, this kingdom life. So Paul giving all these ethical commands was good news because to the extent that we are able to obey them and obey God's commands, we will experience true freedom in life. 
our life will be more harmonious and more joyful and more at peace. Well, after all of that, now Paul is closing his letter by reminding the Ephesians that their battle is not against flesh and blood, which perhaps scared the bejeebies out of some of them, or at least some of us. Read that like, okie doke. I'll just go to the next chapter. But immediately Paul follows that with an encouragement that the spiritual strength that comes from living in Christ is akin to that of a Roman soldier in his panoply of armor. Keep in mind, the Ephesians were all too familiar with soldiers of the Roman army since they lived under Roman occupation. I mean, they knew what Paul was talking about, right? To them, a Roman soldier would have epitomized worldly strength, right? I mean, they would have literally viewed a legion of Roman soldiers working in concert together as invincible, right? Because they had been thus far. I mean, they cut through a continent and a half like, you know, a knife through butter. But as Paul lists out the the pieces of armor, the belt and the breastplate and the shoes and the shield and the helmet and the sword that makes a Roman soldier so strong, he associates each one with a characteristic of the life in Christ that he's been describing for the previous five chapters. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, knowledge of the word of God. So what's Paul up to? Well, this is Paul's way of saying that why the spiritual forces opposing the Ephesians are great, are too great for them in their own strength. If they will merely seek to live in Christ as he's taught them to and as he's been talking about, then the designs and the plans and the schemes of these evil forces will not succeed in their lives. In other words, he's telling them that the whole secret of spiritual strength lies in living in this physical life in, in spiritual union with the Lord. If we forsake abiding in Christ, then these evil forces are going to wreak havoc in our lives and use us to wreak havoc in the lives of others, of course. But if we remain committed to to living lives of truth and righteousness and wisdom and peace, these things he's talking about through reliance upon Jesus and through opening up ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're going to be okay. And we'll even become a blessing, a haven, protection for others. So I know people often try to turn this passage into a guide to becoming a spiritual superhero and actively taking on Satan, kind of creating these these Christian Harry Potters, you know. But to hold to that interpretation, we really have to ignore the context of of the whole letter. In fact, verse 11 makes clear that Paul's talking about standing against the devil's schemes, not going after the devil. Other scholars have noted that the armor Paul describes actually isn't the complete Roman armor, but the complete armor of a Roman soldier. Paul leaves out two of the three offensive weapons 
He includes only one offensive weapon and the sword. Everything else is defensive, which led Bishop Mould to conclude Paul is not painting a picture of a march or an assault, but of the holding of the fortress of the soul and the church for the heavenly king. Of standing in Christ. So perhaps God has called certain believers to be offensive and aggressive Uh, you know, to employ some methods of spiritual warfare in certain situations. But I tell you what, if I'm going to get into that sort of stuff as a Christian, it has to remain secondary to cooperating with God's number one objective for me, which is changing my character to be more like Jesus's has to remain secondary to that or things are going to get wacky. We must recognize that in our sinfulness there's going to be a pull towards spiritual practices that focus on problems that are external to us. And that that pull is going to be there in our sinfulness in order to evade and stay away from the inner work that true discipleship requires. So some Christians get fixated on influencing politics for Jesus. Others obsess over the end times. Some focus on getting the liturgy just perfect. Still others get into signs and wonders and spiritual warfare, all the while resisting, in some cases, the work God is dying to do for them and in them of healing and changing their heart. So I'm not saying these interests are bad or wrong in and of themselves. I'm sure God has called people to develop proficiency in each of the areas I just mentioned. But a belief that must be foundational, a belief that that is indispensable to healthy spirituality, is the belief that the source and root of all of my problems begins with me and my sinful attitude. Not people out there. Not things out there. The source of all my problems is my heart aligning with the schemes of the enemy. My trying to play God. And working on that, working on our character is how Jesus wants to, that's how he wants to bring change to the world through us. Everything else is secondary. So I'll close with this. The good news of this passage is that even though it's, it, it's, flesh and, it's not flesh and blood that we're up against, the battle is, in, is engaged and won by engaging in earthly spiritual practices like prayer, study, fellowship, accountability, obedience. Those things that keep us in union with Jesus. If we want to walk, if we want Jesus to watch Satan's influence fall from our lives 
from our lives like lightning from heaven, we need only learn to stand in Him, in Christ. Amen. All the background that I was giving kind of from an Old Testament perspective and even some on Ephesians uh, was from a podcast series called The Bible Project. And if you pick up a manuscript on your way out, uh, there's a link to some podcasts on that subject matter if, you're, if it tickled your fancy today. 